Welcome to Gravity, a podcast on the environment and human rights issues from the local to the global. The United States has championed for the end of child labour on the world stage, and yet we continue to have oppressive child labour policies domestically in the agricultural sector. In the majority of our states, children at any age can work on small farms, and at just 12 on any sized farm with parental permission, with no or little restriction on the amount they can work outside of school. Long hours and strenuous work make it almost impossible for children to continue with their schooling and propels them to a life of performing unskilled and low-paid agricultural labour. The continued agricultural exceptionalism is particularly disconcerting because the sector has some of the highest incidence of work-related injuries and fatalities. Children are exposed to pesticides, work around dangerous machinery, perform strenuous repetitive tasks in extreme weather for long periods of time and risk chronic disabilities and illnesses. Additionally, in the tobacco fields, we expose children to nicotine. This shameful national tragedy stems from an agricultural exceptionalism that has been mythologized as the preservation of the American family farm, but that has roots in structural racism that continues to pervade contemporary agricultural politics. Agricultural workers were resolutely left out of the New Deal, for instance by being exempted from the overtime provisions of the Fair Labor Standards Act, as well as the right to collectively bargain under the National Labor Relations Act by a Southern-dominated Congress that sought to entrench and continue the structural racism of the South. Today, structural racism continues to pervade agricultural politics as the majority of farm laborers are immigrant Hispanic workers. Arguably, the historic racial motivation for the agricultural exemptions to New Deal legislation and its continuing racist effect violate both the 13th and 14th Amendments of our Constitution, the prohibition on slavery and the right to equal protection, respectively. The Children for Responsible Employment, or the CARE Act, which seeks to provide equal protection to child farm workers as provided to children in other industries, has unfortunately lingered in Congress since being introduced in 2009. To discuss these issues and more, I spoke with Zayma Neff, the Executive Director of the Children's Rights Division of Human Rights Watch, which has been vigilantly working on behalf of the children that are compelled to toil in our fields and produce our food. Welcome to Gravity, Zayma. Thank you for having me. On the surface, the U.S. seems to be combating child labor across the world. We have a department within the Department of Labor, the Bureau of International Labor Affairs, which has as one of its primary objectives the ending of child labour across the world. And if you go on its site, which I've discussed in a previous episode dedicated to child slave labour in the cacao industry, you can search by country and product to see where child labour is occurring. The aim of the site, for instance, by showing you that children pick blueberries in Argentina or cultivated the coffee in Colombia, is to educate the public so that we don't buy products made by children. And yet, we seem to have a very hypocritical stance here because domestically grown blueberries and coffee, amongst other farm products, are brought to our shops and produced by the toil of children. I would wager that a lot of our listeners would be both flabbergasted and appalled to discover that it's completely legal for young children to work in agriculture throughout the U.S., There continues to be a double standard respecting federal employment laws as they apply to child agricultural labour and other industry Zema, may you please elaborate on this double standard? Well, when it comes to child labor in the United States, for the most part, the laws are pretty 
good. And the exception is agriculture, where there's a big gaping hole that leaves children who work on farms with far fewer protections than all other working children. But Alexandra, I'm glad you started off with the point that the U.S. historically has been a a leader in combating child labor around the world. And that's not only been really important for the children who've, who've truly benefited from that, but there's an interest in the United States with a whole range of, you know, products and and goods that are being either um, manufactured or enjoyed in the United States and people don't you know don't want to enjoy products that are made with child laborers but also American companies don't want to have to uh, go up against other companies that are using dangerous child labor so we really feel like that role has been so important historically and we very much hope to see those efforts continue including in 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 the light of this current administration's policies around around labor but when it comes to child labor at home this is the area that the united states needs to needs to fix and in, in this day and age there's no reason that children who are working on farms who are mostly poor and who are mostly latino shouldn't have the same protections as children who work in every other sector in the united states Right. And while, for instance, there's also a different standard in entertainment respecting child labor, what's particularly unfortunate here is that agriculture is a significantly hazardous industry. In fact, the National Safety Council ranks it as the most dangerous industry. It is. Um, you know, the kids are far more likely to be killed or be maimed while working on a farm than in other sectors. Um whether it's children who are crushed to death when tractors roll over on them, children who fall from heights that they wouldn't be able to work at legally in other areas or who are working with really dangerous tools and machinery, some of which the very same tools are illegal to hire a kid to work with in a lumber yard or in a Walmart warehouse, a farmer can legally hire a child to work with on a farm. It doesn't make it safer just because it's because it's on a farm. The other reason that, that more kids are dying and being hurt working on farms is because they can work at far younger ages and for far longer hours on farms than in any other job. There's just a, there's a different rule. And they can do work that is considered particularly hazardous for children. On a farm at age 16, they can't do those same jobs until age 18 in all other sectors. And that's just the loophole that's built into the Fair Labor Standards Act that Congress needs to close. So the Fair Labor Standards Act is the main federal law that regulates the age restrictions and other working conditions for children on farms throughout the United States. And states can supplant these laws, but the FLSA provides the minimum standard. Now, one of the problems is that the FLSA provides a very weak standard and 17 states don't even have any laws respecting child labor. They simply defer to the FLSA. And there's also an exemption for small farms from the FLSA. Now, what is this federal standard and what age can a minor work on a small farm with parental permission and on any size farm with parental permission? Believe it or not, it's no minimum age on a small farm with parental permission. And at age 12, children can work unlimited hours outside of school on any size farm with parental permission. So 12 12 and up, you can find uh, kids on, you know, they can work legally on large commercial farms for unlimited hours outside of school. I suppose the school hours exclusion is to keep children that work in agriculture in school. But if a child is working numerous hours outside of school, and in some jurisdictions where that's completely unregulated, they can say work equal hours on a farm as well as in school. When do they have time to do their homework, to rest, to sleep or participate in the school's extracurricular activities? 
this surely makes it extremely difficult not only to excel, but continue their education. At Human Rights Watch, we've we've interviewed kids who described just how hard it was to work and go to school at the same time. And when they're working too many hours, the toll is carried out on their schoolwork. That's why in every other kind of job, the number of hours that kids can work while they're going to school is capped. And kids are not allowed to work late at night or early in the morning because we know that when kids work too many hours, their studies suffer. And those same protections should be there in agriculture and, and they're not. Why do we have this agricultural exceptionalism throughout most of the United States? I mean, histor- historically, far more Americans lived and worked on farms. And that is something that's changed you know, relatively recently. And a high school education, a high school diploma, frankly, was far less important in the past than it is today. But it's also true that um, the groups who have done farm work have often had the have had no voice in the halls of decision makers. And that's equally true today. And one of the reasons that Human Rights Watch took up this issue is because we think it is discriminatory to have weaker protections for a group that is mostly Latino than than all other working children. And I think those discriminatory motives are something that that, that lawmakers should take a, a really hard look at. We're focusing on children in this episode, but I want to address a point you just made there that farmers in general have less protections than other workers, even though they work in some of the most strenuous and hazardous conditions and produce what is pivotal to our existence, our food. They're exempted from federal overtime laws and workers' compensation laws in some states, even though they have some of the most work-related injuries and some of the most disabling. And in the majority of states, they they do not have the right to bargain collectively and are exempted from the coverage of the National Labor Relations Act, which provides for workers' collective bargaining rights. California is one of the very few states, if not uh, maybe the only state, that allows farmers to collectively bargain. The whole workforce appears to be exploited, and this makes children even more vulnerable to exploitation and abuse. Well, and one of the things that we found was that labor rights abuses against adults, both in the United States and elsewhere, can fuel child labor. So, for example, when farm workers, I talked to, you know, women, mothers and grandmothers who were hoeing cotton for $45, $50 a day in um, in the Texas panhandle in, you know, over 100 degree weather, you know, and with, you know, these huge um, growths of weeds and a hoe to, to tackle them. Those those women said, you know, we can't we can't pay child care out of we're making 40 to $50 a day. So we bring our kids in the field and those kids sometimes end up end up working. But when a family is, you know, is is not making when parents are working so hard at jobs that are so dangerous and difficult and not making enough money to put food on the table, that puts intense pressure on the children to work as well. I mean, one of the things that I found in my own research talking with children and adults who who worked on piece rate, so you get paid for what you pick, is that even though the law requires uh, farmers to put in money if the person doesn't pick enough to make minimum wage, I never found an example of that happening. And piece rate in particular creates an incentive to bring kids, both because it's Sometimes the, the parents are making less money. And also sort of the more you pick, the more you get paid. And there's an incentive to even if the kid is, you know, making, you know, a dollar an hour, it still contributes to, to the family income. And I interviewed, for example, this family in Michigan where um, three kids and the mom was working. But as the mom says, you know, she's 12 years old. She doesn't have a bank account. She can't cash a check. So they just put everyone under the mom's check. It looked like she was making more than minimum wage. But, you know, there'd be four or five people working for that check. States can supplant the federal laws, 
But as we've discussed before, 17 states don't have any laws respecting child labor in agriculture. These include Alabama, Georgia, Kansas, Kentucky, Louisiana, North Carolina, Tennessee, Oklahoma, and Texas. And very few states have more rigid protections than the FLSA. California does, for instance, but it still nevertheless continues to have a disparity with other industries respecting child labor. Few states limit hours and night work and have higher age restrictions than the FLSA. And it seems for farms outside of the family-owned farms, and, you know, here I wonder whether employers could get away uh, with some, say, equity investment scheme, since there's no definition or qualification of ownership to limit it to small wholly-owned family farms. But only California requires the consent of the local school board, not merely parental permission, which I think should be adopted in other jurisdictions. The problem with parental permission is that parents might be in an extremely vulnerable state and in a position where they practically can't say no to, say, an older sibling wanting to chip in and increase family income. We don't defer to parental permission for other industries. Right. I mean, the states can always do more than the federal law requires, but there's no state that has entirely closed the gap. There's no state that provides children who work in agriculture with the same protections as all other working children. And at Human Rights Watch, that's the conclusion we reach from our research, that in order to fully protect children's health and safety, work, kids who are working on farms should have the same protections as a kid who works in a grocery store or a McDonald's or in an office building. They shouldn't have fewer protections. Now, I want to discuss what the working conditions are for kids working in agriculture and what health consequences they may face as a result of their agricultural work. Well, you can find children working in every state in the United States in agriculture and doing a whole range of crops. I mean, I've, I've talked to kids in the Midwest who are detasseling corn and walking beans, kids elsewhere who are picking apples and cherries and zucchinis and oranges, blueberries, hoeing cotton, cutting down Christmas trees. You, you can find, you know, almost any almost any kind of crop that requires some kind of manual labor that's not mechanized in some respect is, is likely going to have some, some kids and involved. If you can imagine, well, say take the tobacco fields of North Carolina, where we've really focused in recent years. The summers in North Carolina are really hot. And one of the things that makes tobacco stand out compared with other crops is that in addition to the to the hot weather and the pesticides that are used that children are exposed to, is that children also are exposed to nicotine. And in the harvest of the tobacco, absorb nicotine through their skin. And the way that that children and adults sometimes try to protect themselves because the nicotine is dissolved in dew or water on the plants, um, is they'll put a trash bag over their clothes, put like cut, cut a hole in the bottom of the trash bag and, and wear it over their clothes. And if you could imagine the only thing hotter than being in a tobacco field in the middle of the day in North Carolina would be being in the tobacco field in the middle of the day in North Carolina with wearing a trash bag. It's a sort of sad compromise for protective gear that's actually recommended but not supplied to the to the workers. So talking about extreme heat, um, exposure to pesticides. I mean, you think about the irony of uh, of just sort of the whole or movement around organic food and our desire to protect children from pesticides much farther down the food chain. And here's kids that are um, out in the fields. The kids talked about being sprayed or even more common having pesticides drift over onto them after they were sprayed. Heat, pesticides, working with sharp tools, with heavy machinery, um, and just working really long hours doing the same motion over and over again. So I talked to, for example, a, a, a young woman who dates her back problems back to working, um, picking zucchinis in, um, in high school where she was bent 
over for hours and hours every day. I talked to a doctor in North Carolina and the, up in the mountains who said that um, he sees very you know very young workers, twenties or thirties, with knee problems um, because they've been down on their knees for so long doing strawberries. So you have those repetitive motion injuries as well. A lot of times there may be issues with access to um, toilets and sanitation and um, clean water to drink. And people sometimes, even though in most cases it's required that employers provide that, people talked about it, having not having it provided, having to bring water from home or just, I had a woman tell me that she just didn't drink water all day, um, even though the temperatures were over 100 degrees because there weren't toilets for her to use the bathroom in. Girls and women describe sexual harassment, in some cases sexual assault. And these, remember, in some cases, um, girls and women who don't necessarily speak English, there's a whole there's a whole mix, even though the major- we believe that the majority of child farm workers are, are working legally in the United States. The data isn't very good. And when you have someone who may not be able to communicate well in English or may also have immigration issues, they're just not going to report sexual harassment and violence. They're, they're a huge, huge target. I mean, the other thing to, I mean, the other thing to mention is that work can have a lot of benefits for children. And, you know, as a parent myself, I'm constantly thinking about, you know, how do I instill in my own children a work ethic um, and good practices and the things that you really learn from, particularly the early kinds of jobs that, that kids have. Um, and that's not the position that – and Human Rights Watch and, and, of course, international law that we're applying doesn't say kids can't ever work. Um, what we're saying is that kids should be old enough – um, they should be doing work that doesn't interfere with getting an education and that doesn't put their health and safety at risk. And the, you know, the irony of this kind of farm work is that far too often it leaves children without an education and with chronic health problems that leave them unable to escape a life of poverty in the future. Yeah, I doubt many people would disagree that instilling a work ethic is important and helpful for a number of reasons. And also the working on the land in particular has a social and pedagogical value, connection with the earth, our food, etc. I think understanding permaculture and working on the land would be very instructive for my own boys, but in a controlled, safe environment and limited in time, not hours at a time of repetitive motions, any dangerous machinery and extreme weather and any pesticides. There's nothing romantic or instructive about that. The other thing is that you want your children to learn valuable skills And if you're only doing menial tasks within agriculture, they're not easily transferable skills and they may be pinned to unskilled, underpaid labor. Right. You're exactly right. I'd like to now discuss the demographics of child labor in the agricultural sector throughout the United States. Who are the children that are picking our blueberries that we fail to protect? Well, I mean, the vast majority of farm workers in the United States are Hispanic or Latino, and most are very poor. I mean, the average family income is something like less than twenty thousand dollars, and this is for you know for the whole for the whole family. And people are often you know living in really I've seen families living in terrible conditions, you know you know trailers with holes in the floor, and and in really you know isolated situations where it's really hard for them to even get out and go to the get transportation to go to the the grocery store and families that um, are are migrating to to try to get some kind of work and have to pull their kids out of school in South Texas, for example, in April, May, before the school year is finished and and don't get back um, until the school year has already started. Such interstate migration must wreak absolute havoc for their schooling since every state has its own curriculum and different start dates. It seems we should have an interstate or federal program to aid in the transfer of these credits 
Do we have one? And if we don't, is there a move to establishing one? I mean, I found a few examples of programs, for example, communications between guidance counselors in Texas and Michigan where there were well-established migrant streams, which were really important, trying to make sure that the credits lined up and that when kids went back and forth, in some cases, you know, starting school in Michigan, going back to Texas, and then finishing the school year again in Michigan. I mean, you can imagine how hard that would be. I also found an example of a program in Texas that paid kids equivalent of minimum wage. They took kids who had failed the high school test and they did a catch-up program over the summer and they made you know it's very it's a very cheap program they pay them basically minimum wage while they while they go take classes and then retake the test and they had a high pass passage rate for relatively little money that program had been cut um, and I think right now what we're we're really concerned about is seeing threats to the very you know minimal amount of social programs that are there that can really make the difference between you know a child ever having a future outside of an impo- outside of poverty. Yeah, unfortunately, with this administration, when we're in dire need of more programs, we're looking at getting shocking massive cuts instead. Um, Okay, but say we continue with these programs or even have better programs. How are the children finding out about these programs? They may have language barriers. They may even be afraid of government interaction in case they fear that, that they or their family members may be deported, and that's even if they are U.S. citizens, and particularly in this political climate. Oh, yeah. I mean, in things like, I mean, the 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 idea of making a complaint about a labor violation was really, you know, that, that was that was completely out of the reach of most kids, even if they had known how to, you know, Make a mostly wage violation to the to the U.S. government. It was interesting to me. One of the one of the groups that I thought would be really supportive of this is, was Future Farmers of America. But the kids that I talked to said that for the most part they they weren't members and they couldn't have they couldn't have afforded to be members or they they didn't have access. I mean, this was this is not. I think there are a lot of myths about sort of the face of who child farm workers are in the United States. Um, I think there's a myth of sort of, you know, good, you know, traditional, wholesome outdoor work uh, for kids who are, you know, off earning money to buy their college textbooks. And the reality couldn't be more different from kids who are never going to have a chance to go to college, have, you know, had no one in their family graduate from high school, who are working so much that that is impairing their, you know, the, their dreams in that respect, and who are actually poisoned by the work that they've taken on at such low wages and such dangerous conditions. Speaking of poison, I want to discuss tobacco farming. You mentioned the children work in tobacco fields in North Carolina and legally they're allowed to do so at 12. Uh, Tobacco requires some of the strongest pesticides. It's grown in places of extreme heat. Nicotine can seep through workers' skin and cause both acute poisoning and chronic effects. A Wake Forest University study found that working in the tobacco fields for 12, 14 hours a day, which some of these kids do on a regular basis, is tantamount to smoking around 30 cigarettes a day. And yet legally, they're not allowed to smoke one. <laughs> yeah, there's some good studies out of out of Wake Forest University in North Carolina. There are, um, yeah, the, the translation to the number of cigarettes is a little, is a little more complicated, but what is, is um, without doubt is that kids are working in the fields and reporting symptoms that are consistent with acute nicotine poisoning, vomiting, headaches. The kids describe it as the worst flu that you've had in your life. And that's an exposure, you know, to the adolescent brain that's still developing. There's you know, new studies about what nicotine does to the 
teenage brain. And we know that kids in general, whether it's pesticides or nicotine, absorb those chemicals more quickly and they excrete them more slowly and that they have negative effects on the brain that's still developing. We are literally using children like guinea pigs in the field for nicotine and pesticide exposure. Recently, tobacco companies have reached an accord to require their growers to not use children below the age of 16 when the legal age remains 12. What is the accord that the industry has reached? It seems more than a little strange to me that I've just stated that tobacco companies have done more to protect children in this respect than our own government, but that seems to be the situation here, right? Well, I mean, it's one of the reasons that we put out our research hoping that the tobacco companies on on their own, since the U.S. government has been so remiss in correcting this well-known problem for, for child workers. We felt like the tobacco companies, and in fact, other agricultural companies could could fix this problem themselves without waiting for the government to act. So there have been uh, there has been some progress for tobacco companies requiring their growers to only hire children over the age of 16. Now we um, and you know the and, and and others take the position that children shouldn't be doing work that's that's dangerous on um, this known to be dangerous until they're 18 years old. So we'd like to see that number be 18 years old, but that there has been a step, and I think the next step is to make sure that's um, well enforced in North Carolina, along with Virginia, Ken- Tennessee, Kentucky, the major states that that produce tobacco. But the larger point is that that the industry can take steps to protect children without waiting for the government to act. So the industry court has been a step forward, but the gap remains with respect to age and enforcement. There is. There's a gap in age and there's um, probably a gap in, in enforcement. But we're, we're glad to see progress in that direction. We want to see tobacco companies apply those standards, raise the age to 18 and apply them around the world. We've done research in Indonesia. We've done uh, looked at sort of actually a contrast in Brazil, which raised Brazil raised the age to 18. It's had quite assertive enforcement and there are far fewer kids working in tobacco than there were just a few years ago. And you think, you know, if the tobacco companies can do it in Brazil. They can do it in the United States. Right. That would be great. Let's hope they do. Now, there's also been efforts on the federal level to attempt to remedy this situation. There's a bill in the Senate and one in Congress to prohibit child labor in tobacco-related industries by deeming it oppressive child labor, which it is. However, both these bills have been sitting stagnant in committee. Why have we not progressed on something that is so rudimentary? Yeah, I mean that's that's a really good question, and to say there's been other legislation that's been introduced for years on end, including something called the Children's Act for Responsible Employment that um, hasn't been passed. I mean, Congress knows how to fix this problem. They need to close the loophole and set the minimum age for hazardous work as 18 um, for agriculture, the same as everywhere else. Raise the minimum age to work at, to 16 with exceptions and protections for 14 and 15 year olds and agriculture the same as anywhere else and, and limit the working hours of kids while they're going to school. It's it's a it's a it's a fix that we know how to do and the obstruction has been getting Congress um, to actually act and to actually take um, the steps that it needs to do to protect mostly poor, mostly Latino child workers. So you mentioned the CARE Act, which was introduced in 2009 in Congress, and it's a real embarrassment that it has not passed yet. One of the reasons it hasn't passed appears to be opposition by the American Farm Bureau based on this romantic narrative of the independence and venerability of the family farm. Yet we've discussed before that the family farm is largely a myth. Further, and what's even more disturbing, is that this argument cannot be in opposition to this act because this act makes an explicit exception to family farms. 
When the Obama administration wanted to increase protections, they were also opposed based on this fallible argument because nothing they proposed would regulate family farms. So how do you explain this opposition and its effect? Yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, that's, that's, there's this a real irony that the arguments that have been used, including by the agricultural lobby, against closing the loophole have been to sort of call up this romantic vision of the, the family farm. And family farms wouldn't be touched by this law at all. Now, a separate question is whether, you know, parents should be allowed to do, to have their kids do things that health and safety experts say are the most likely to kill and maim them. But, you know, mm-hmm. be clear, any, all of the laws that have been proposed don't cover the family farm. Right, you make a great point there respecting parental rights. We don't give parents absolute right over their kids and their environmental conditions. And many kids have been injured, maimed, even killed while working on their family farms. In one case, a parent can be charged with neglect, and in another, they're in this legal abyss. It doesn't make any sense. It's it's preposterous. It's interesting just to know, too, like in other family businesses, say a bakery, there are still labor rules that say that the the children of the of the owners can't do certain things that are considered especially dangerous. Now, you know, when I was I was down in Virginia at one point in the um, Labor Committee, the chair of the Labor Committee had posed the question when they were considering a law on tobacco specifically, are you saying my parents are stupid? Because he initially said that he worked on a tobacco farm that came out. He worked actually in a restaurant. But, you know, and I think there may be um, a tendency to see this as a critique of of parents. Um, and I, I really don't see it that way. I mean, I think, you know, as parents, we're all trying to do what's, what's best for our own children, but what we know about the risks of farm work has changed over time. So what we know about the risk of pesticides is different than what was known, for example, in the, in, in 1970, when agriculture standards were, were set for what's dangerous for kids. And, you know, what we, just as like what we know about helmets or car seats, like that exactly. changes over time and we want to take full advantage of what's available. And now we know more about what's too dangerous for children who are too young to be doing on farms, and we should take full advantage of that. The car seat is a perfect example. You can't leave a hospital without one, even if you're walking home, but kids can drive grandfathered unsafe tractors on family farms, which continue to cause easily avoidable and tragic injuries, including fatalities. As you've just said, we already encroach on parents' dominion when we know the child is at risk, so we shouldn't deny kids working on their family farm the same protections. I want to move now from the legislature to the executive and its ability to better the conditions of children working on farms under existing legislation. The Department of Labor has hazard orders at its disposal and the EPA can tighten its restrictions with respect to pesticide handling and re-entry after spraying of pesticides. May you please explicate a bit more on how the executive can tighten regulations to ameliorate the conditions of children currently working on farms and provide them more protections? Right. I mean, there are certain loopholes that only Congress can close, but the Department of Labor is able to set the list of what jobs are considered too dangerous for children under age 16. So there's still the loophole, the gap between 16 and for 16 and 17 year olds on farms, but but the Department of Labor can say these jobs are too dangerous for under 16s. Under the Obama administration, the Department of Labor put out a proposed regulation. There was tremendous backlash, including by the farm lobby, and they withdrew that regulation. And these the, this list, just to know, this list of what's too dangerous for kids on farms hasn't been updated since 1970. And you can believe that we know a lot more about agricultural safety than we did in in 1970. The other thing. 
thing it can do is actually enforce the law. And if you look, there's just been a dramatic decline in, in overall child labor enforcement, but including in in agriculture. I mean, for 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 most growers, you know, the, the possibility of ever being sanctioned, ever facing any fines for violating the laws on child labor. So that would be like using a child under age 12 on a large commercial farm or having them do things that, that are actually on the list, the limited list. The, the chances of that of them ever facing a penalty are remote. And then if you look at the actual penalties, they're so low that it can be considered a cost of doing business. So the Department of Labor could also step up enforcement of existing child labor laws and strengthen the things it has power to regulate, like what jobs are too dangerous for younger children. And unfortunately, it doesn't appear that we're going to have rigorous enforcement by the Trump administration in this regard. The Department of Labor, however, has criminal penalties at its disposal for multiple offenders, as well as hot goods designation. But it seems that if it were to utilize anything, it would be civil penalties. You mentioned these were low. What kind of figures are we talking about? You could look at the most recent data on the Department of Labor website. But the last time I looked at it, it was you know something like less than $1,000 a violation. And then there were just the tiny, tiny number of, of violations, you know, you would... I, 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 you know, I have talked to I talked to kids who are working in violation of the of the labor laws, but I, but I never came across an actual case of someone I met who who had who had felt like there had been any sort of real inspection. And if you look at the numbers, the Department of Labor's website, it really bears that out. You can also look and see, you can see, you know, the penalties that are assessed, but they can be negotiated downwards. So those are not even necessarily the penalties that are actually paid. So we have penalties of a few thousand dollars to deter companies that make hundreds of millions. The penalties are not sufficient as a deterrence. I think the other problem is that on the federal level and in the majority of states, there's no private right of action and you have no plaintiff's bar to claim damages and attorney fees. I believe if we had a private plaintiff bar, we would see more vigilance. Right. I mean, enforcement has been really has been really low. And, you know, you have a few thousand labor inspectors who are in charge with inspecting everything for the whole country, not just child labor, of course, but every range of labor violations. And, you know, to go out to a farm takes, you know, often takes a lot of driving, and a lot of time and the incentives just aren't there. I want to go back to children's exposure to pesticides. Since children are much more sensitive and vulnerable to these neurotoxins, it seems the current EPA standards still lack sufficient protection for child farm workers. I believe reentry times may still be based on adult males, even though children are much more sensitive. Can you please explain a little more on the effects on children from pesticides and the gaps in current regulation? There are now some protections, including for children working with um, working with pesticides, and f- including prohibitions on children under age 18 working with pesticides. So the EPA has actually had a stronger standard than even the Department of Labor, and we were really glad to see that. But there's no question that children are being exposed to pesticides in the field, and it's having a poisonous uh, effect. I mean, the other is just things like um, you know when pesticides are sprayed and the wind is blowing. You know, children described having you know breathing pesticides and being exposed in that way, as well as, you know, in some cases, kids actually getting sprayed in complete violation of the of the rules. This exposure is really problematic. Pesticide exposure can cause acute irritation, vomiting, eye, skin irritation, as well as chronic effects, including cancer. That's right. And because some of these things 
come out years later, there hasn't necessarily been good research that that ties it directly back to the exposure that kids had as as workers. That's when I say we're using kids as guinea pigs. It's in part because kids are we we know kids are getting exposed, and some of the a lot of the long term effects are not necessarily being captured. I mean, even kids. I mean, I talked to kids who had gone home and started throwing up. They didn't necessarily go to the doctor. I mean, they didn't necessarily have access to healthcare or the time to take off work to go and get treated. That's one of the problems of compiling data for research because we need people to go to the doctor and present with these problems in order to get the data. Sometimes people just don't go to the doctor. They don't have access to medical care or for some other reason don't go. And this presents a problem for compiling accurate data on the situation. You mentioned before that a significant portion of workers are undocumented or have undocumented family members. So possibly they may not wish to complain to authorities about any ill treatment, even illegal treatment, because they fear immigration will get involved. And then there's also families that are provided housing by their employers. So in that respect, they would be practically risking not only the loss of their employment or retaliation in wages or fear of immigration, but loss of their housing. They are. I've, you know, I've been to migrant worker housing or, or farm worker housing in, in a number of states, and you realize that what it would mean to actually complain, and that even if there was a way for the people to complain, they would, you would, you would lose your housing, and so the stakes are really high. I want to discuss the problem of sexual assault for child farm workers and girls in particular. California requires regular sexual harassment training for farm workers, but this is not required on a federal level, nor it seems is it required in any other state, and it appears there's not much enforcement, although, again, this would require someone to speak out, and children may feel uh, too embarrassed or fearful or threatened to do so. What is the current situation respecting sexual assault of children working on farms? I interviewed kids who had never confronted sexual harassment and abuse and kids who described it as a as a really serious problem. And I think you know, this is one of the reasons that kids, boys and girls, shouldn't be out in isolated fields when they're too when they're too young. There makes them more of a of a target. And you know, there's actually just like the you know, the physical working conditions of the rows, but also the fact that um, you know, I interviewed kids who might be working on the same farm as their their parents, um, but they'd be off in some other part of the the farm. Girls talked about having to they weren't just covering up for the sun, they were covering up to sort of to you know, eliminate any distinguishing feature of their body to avoid verbal harassment, but also physical harassment. Now, the EEOC has brought some cases, and you know, I think that kind of those kinds of consequences for sexual harassment and abuse are um, important. But we just we need to see a lot more. And and frankly, this is just one of these situations where, in such isolated working conditions, you just shouldn't have children who are who are so young, so much younger than kids who can be employed in any other job. So we need you know, accountability for sexual violence and harassment and enforcement, but also the protections for the youngest kids. Our domestic law is also in violation of our international obligations. We're a signatory, but not a party to the Convention on the Rights of the Child, even though that's embarrassing, but that's another uh, topic, and a ratified party to the Convention on the Elimination of the Worst Forms of Child Labor. While I trust we all know what this entails viscerally, I nevertheless think it's instructive to read the following from the recommendation. The worst forms of child labor at a minimum are A, work which exposes children to physical, emotional, or sexual abuse. B, work underground, underwater, at dangerous heights, or in confined spaces. C, 
work with dangerous machinery, equipment and tools, or which involves the manual handling or transport of heavy loads. D, work in an unhealthy environment, which may, for example, expose children to hazardous substances, agents or processes, or to temperatures, noise levels, or vibrations damaging to their health. And E, work under particularly difficult conditions such as work for long hours or during the night or work which does not allow for the possibility of returning home each day. How does this sit with how we take care of our children on farms? I think it's really clear that some of the work that children are doing on farms in the United States violates the United States' commitment under the Worst Forms of Child Labor Convention not to have children do the most dangerous work. I, th- I don't think there's any question that that's the case. Pesticides, tobacco plants, sexual assault, dangerous machinery, extreme weather. It seems we've pretty much ticked all the boxes here. We're purportedly a world champion against child labor, but we're also an egregious violator. That's correct. I mean, and that's, you know, just just to say that the role of the United States internationally in combating child labor um, ha- has and is been very important. And those same efforts should be applied equally at home, particularly for the most vulnerable workers. It's going to be nearly 10 years that the CARE Act has lingered in the congressional abyss and there has not been much movement on the state level either. So what is the way forward? I mean, I think both um, public pressure on members of Congress and going straight to the industry is is important. I think, you know, most people don't want to put food on their table that has been produced by the exploitation and endangerment of children. I, that I, I have not met people who, who, who value that. I think there's there's been some concern about whether it would increase the cost of food, but companies will say, you know, blueberry companies who've been caught out for actually violating the law will say we don't we don't depend on on child child labor. This is not an industry that would needs child labor in order to survive. I think there the response of industry would be we're following the law and that's what we should be required to do. But I think we should look for examples of where industry has gone beyond the bare bones of the, the law. Consumers can help with that and they can put pressure on um, the places where they're buying their food from. Um, but they can also reach out to members of Congress and ask them to protect these children. I mean, it's not possible at this point in the U.S. really to avoid food that has been picked by children. And I think the best fix needs to come from the law and from industry and from demand from consumers. Right. We can demand changes from industry as consumers of these products. We have humane stickers for animal produce, but we don't have any labels on food that workers were treated humanely in the manufacture of the product or that no child labor was used. When faced with a direct choice respecting products that are better for animals and the environment, people have shown they're willing to pay more. Maybe companies that are not using oppressive child labor should champion a child-safe label just like we have dolphin-safe labels for tuna. And I believe that consumers will really respond to that. People who care about where their food is from and the conditions under which it's produced should also care if um, children were exploited or endangered to put that food on their table. I think that one of the problems is that a lot of people simply don't know that this situation exists. It hasn't received sufficient media attention nor opprobrium. Right. I mean, I I think a lot of people think of child labor as a problem that happens elsewhere without realizing that you can find it in almost every state in the United States. 
So for our listeners that want to help, what should they do? The first is to educate themselves. And, you know, we have a lot of information on our on Human Rights Watch's website, which is www.hrw.org. But consumers can also contact the companies that they buy from and they can contact their members of Congress. And I would say if there's one thing that people are going to do that makes a difference, call your member of Congress and tell them you want them to close the loophole in the Fair Labor Standards Act and make children who work in agriculture enjoy the same protections as all other working children. Please do go out and do that. Call your federal and state representatives and request they take action to remedy this egregious situation. Thank you for your time today, Zayma, and your commendable work at Human Rights Watch in seeking to close the gap and provide more protections to children working in agriculture. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate your covering this. I feel like this is, you know, a continuously neglected issue and it's really great that you're drawing attention to it. I hope you have found this podcast insightful and will join us next time as we explore more issues affecting our environment and human rights at home and around the world. For more materials on this issue, please go to our website, thegravity.fm.